Welcome to the Safety Talks podcast presented by Safopedia.com, empowering the workplace with free health and safety information. I'm your host, Pat Robinson. Safety Talks seeks to educate and inform through our discussions with experts and influencers in all aspects of occupational health and safety. We cover current practices and new developments in emerging technologies, management systems, legislation, and safety best practices. Now, to today's guest. Today we're talking about pipeline integrity and the impact that drone technology is having in that sector. Sean Carnahan and Jason Braverman from SkyX are leading innovation in the way aerial data is obtained, analyzed, and actioned. Sean explains much about the history and the business of pipeline integrity, and Jason describes how the technology, including the emerging field of artificial intelligence, is making pipeline systems and other critical infrastructure safer and more reliable. Sean has 30 plus years experience in the oil and gas industry. Based in his home state of Texas, Sean brings special expertise in the area of pipeline integrity management and innovative solutions. With degrees in computer science, aviation science, and aerospace engineering, Jason specializes in developing high-impact solutions in a number of different industries. Welcome, Sean, Jason, all about pipelines and technology. So let's get started. Let's talk about uh, pipelines and the amount of infrastructure that's out there, uh, the commodities that are moved in these, these pipelines, and uh, let's just get the audience grounded out on the equipment and infrastructure that you folks are, uh, you folks deal with uh, each day. So we had chatted earlier about pipeline and, and infrastructure, and particularly oil and gas uh, infrastructure. So let's let's just get a sense of the kinds of systems that uh, your your technology uh, is applied to, and the major industries and some of those fundamentals. Sure. Uh, well, first, I want to go ahead. Uh, I guess we can start in addressing your initial question of how big this industry is when it comes to pipelines, and just in the U.S. alone, there's more than 2.4 million miles of pipe, you know, network of crude oil and that gas and some other ACLs. But um, fair enough to say that it's, it looks like an entire artery system in a map and uh, covers millions of miles along with um, 72,000 miles just in pure crude straight lines alone. And breakdown of, uh, of commodities. So um, there's a lot of oil moving. There's a lot of natural gas moving. Do you have a sense for you know, what the majority commodities are. So are these systems moving more oil than they are gas? Uh, no, and there's a reason for that. For instance, uh, nat gas makes up about 2.1 million. So fairly overly dominant pipeline. And that's because the pipelines have a tendency to do one of three different types of commodities. So if it's a crude pipeline, it's only going to be used for crude. If it's nat gas, it's only for gas. And if it's for other liquids, it'll be used for those. The rise of nat gas, starting back even from early 90s all the way through to now, the infrastructure and the technology to use it and sell it has come along over the past few decades. So these pipelines are more the newer ones that make up the majority of the network. So are you able to, to give the listeners a sense for the, the efficiency of these systems and their reliability? You know, obviously, uh, pipeline integrity is something that's... Um, uh, in the in the news from time to time, and by and large, folks may not have good reference points for 
ultimately how, how safe this mode of transportation is versus uh, non-pipeline transportation modes. So can you comment uh, at all on pipeline integrity and its, its history uh, versus other modes? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Jason can chime in with some of the technology advances as well. The uh, initial situation is that uh, pipelines were obviously built because we need to move liquids from one spot to another, such as a oil field to a refinery, without traversing over using trucks or trains or anything else. Instead, just build a straight pipeline, which can be buried in some places and in, in, in relatively uh, obscure from interacting with anybody or any sort of timeline. It's on, it's flowing, and it's a nonstop pipeline. The um, previous modes, of course, were trains and anywhere else they could carry liquid from one spot to another. Of course, very difficult. The train lines have to go to where you need them to go. Otherwise, you have to offset it. And then the other mode of transportation, which is still popular today, is, is by boat. It's not hard to understand why pipelines are important. One thing about it is that uh, these things are on 24-7. You know, they don't turn them on and off all day. And uh, with that many millions of miles of pipeline, when you hear of an incident, it's a, it's a big deal, but it's, it's something that they're constantly watching. And it's the main focus of really keeping the pipeline going is, is it up? Is it running? Is it safe? And does it need any repair or anything is, is something they think about all day, every day. And what about uh, pipelines from a health and safety point of view uh, versus traditional modes? Um, you know, and, and one of the things that uh, I think captures the consciousness um, uh, an event in uh, Quebec, Canada, a couple of years ago in Lac Megantic, where there is uh, a significant train derailment that uh, essentially burned down half the town. Uh, obviously, this fire uh, explosion and fire fed by fuels that uh, were on board the train. You know, the, these kinds of incidents are sort of high consciousness given the losses involved. I can't recall uh, an equivalent situation with a pipeline where there's such dramatic uh, loss of, of uh, property resources and and uh, human lives. Well, I, I can point out one, uh, a few for you. It's very tragic when something like a pipeline uh, actually causes an issue to the environment, you know, people, places, and, and agriculture. Just recently in Mexico, one of the pipelines was being uh, infiltrated by a third party and ended up exploding and killing 50 plus people and damaging a lot of other things. This happens often in you know other countries as well. You'll hear about explosions killing people or if a leak goes into the ecosystem and starts, you know, killing off an entire area. Now pipeline can cause, you know, tremendous amount of damage, you know, both subsurface and anything around it is can you know it is transporting flammable liquids a very high pressure pipeline. So when things go wrong can go wrong very very quickly and very bad. Um, the event in Mexico that you mentioned, uh, this was uh, a case where a third party, essentially a civilian, was trying to uh, obtain product, siphon product, or in, in somehow uh, to take product from the pipeline in an author, unauthorized fashion. Yeah, correct. So yeah. They were trying to, what we refer to as a hot tap or just you know an unauthorized third party intrusion into the pipeline and uh, something else went uh, completely wrong. Yeah, needless to say, Mexico is now upping and continuing a serious effort to uh, handle third-party obstructions of any type so that their pipelines can remain open and without any threat to the environment or people. So let's talk then about uh, the, the issues of, of pipeline integrity, um, because there's uh, quite a history in terms of 
how uh, integrity was ensured from years ago. And of course, as time rolls by and technologies improve, there's been uh, significant new things come into the market. And obviously, we're going to have a, a discussion regarding uh, the technology that your company uses and and some of the um, sort of dramatic improvements that uh, UAVs are bringing. But um, before we get into those details, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, activities around pipeline integrity over the years and, and you know, maybe some examples of um, milestones along the way and, and how things have uh, got better historically? Okay, uh, definitely. Good question. Thank you very much. The idea is um, in the old days, if you had a pipeline, some would have to walk it or ride the horse or traverse it somehow and just take notes as they go and report that back as far as keeping the pipeline up and running. But of course, in the early startup of uh, pipelines, you know they followed the government-mandated regulations that were in place at the time. Obviously, pipelines are some new things, so they've gotten better and better over the years of like what exactly is considered to be a, a safe pipeline. But needless to say, early ones were handled by person. Then came along other vehicles that could do it, including planes, to uh, just keep a bird's eye view of what's going on and kind of spot some of the major issues. As technology has blossomed since like in the 80s, uh, systems such as uh, SCADA and other types of sensors that are placed along the pipeline have been involved in order to increase safety and and efficiency of the pipelines. Uh, SCADA are still heavily used today. They're very revolutionary at the time. You place a SCADA point all along your pipeline and it would send back certain types of uh, sensor data so you could see what's happening along the pipeline without having to send somebody. Um, still, it's, it's just sensor data, like is there a sensor off or is it too hot or too cold or something like that, but it was on the pipeline. But they would still have to send somebody out to ver- visually verify what's going on. It's very hard to, uh, to avoid having a visual detection when it comes to pipeline. You definitely need to see what's going on and, and, and correct it pro- appropriately. Since then, there's been things that they call smart pigs, uh, which are uh, large objects they place on the inside of the pipeline that goes along with the flow and collects information as it goes through the pipeline. And when it comes out, the uh, engineers or the team, if they have smart readers, can tell what's going on while it's going through the pipeline and find out if there's anything they need to pay attention to on the inside. Those combined with fiber optic cable now that they lay, lay along the entire pipeline and an increased ability through UAVs to gather more detailed, more regular visual data, you know, scans and thermals and infrared and LIDAR and high dev and all the other things. I can turn it over to Jason about all the different types of sensors that are available. Well, just from a, um, uh, the perspective of moving from you know, basic instruments, uh, pressure measuring instruments and temperature probes essentially inserted into pipelines to to digital and having, um, you know, the, the advances in instrumentation, which, uh, and I, I obviously don't have the, the best reference points, but my sense would be things were changing significantly with microprocessors and so on in the sort of mid mid 80s uh, to late 80s somewhere in that period where the advent of just so much digital equipment was um, essentially remaking the the capabilities of uh, owners of these facilities to understand you know just in a, in a far better way and I'd imagine this that this phenomenon rolled over into integrity as well because the the instruments were 
more precise and you, I think you're able to have just simply more of them um, and be able to network this data where that capability with uh, just standard uh, instruments just didn't exist. I mean, you'd have to have somebody uh, walking a line to take a look at a, a temperature probe in a line um, you know, typically writing that down perhaps on paper, uh, that kind of thing where um, as things went digital, and I think that time frame is happy to have you guys comment there. It must have been a fairly revolutionary uh, five or 10 years, I guess, would be my, my best guess at it. I was going to, I was just going to add that, uh, you know, to what Sean was saying about the SCADA and the, the fiber optic deployments. So probably it took about 10 years um, from the 80s, the you know, early 80s to the 90s to get that technology on board. And it certainly revolutionized the integrity management for the whole entire pipeline industry. The problem is, is that with the just massive amounts of range and, and pipelines that exist in the millions of miles um, worldwide, it's very difficult to deploy the SCADA sensors uh, along the entire routes that are needed to get the coverage that you want to do. And certainly the fiber optic cables are quite expensive to deploy as well. That's yeah. been the limiting factor. That, coupled with uh, communications uh, infrastructure that's missing in these r many remote regions where pipelines are running, adds to the problem. So while it's great and, and those things are uh, certainly reducing the amount of incidents on these pipelines and greatly increasing the amount of information and data that the, the facilities managers are receiving, it still leaves uh, a huge gap in the amount of information that's needed to totally cover um, a, a pipeline from end to end. Great, great reference points. Um... Because there's an awful lot of like old infrastructure out there, and um, obviously it's it's easier to install um, from a practicality point of view if you want um, the best information and all those kinds of things to to new do new installations with current technology than to um, retrofit existing technology from 50, 60, or 80 years ago. I don't again I don't have the best reference points here, but some of the 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 real critical. Um, uh, infrastructure out there is uh, is that old, yeah? 70, 80 years in some cases? Yeah, the um, the infrastructure that's out there, if you're talking just about the pipelines itself, they've been there for at least a century. The issues that we're looking at, though, is, is very similar to just how tech in general has evolved. You can imagine, I mean, pipelines and uh, the oil and gas industry in general has plenty of money to solve whatever problem they need to solve. Um, they're very slow to adopt any kind of new trendy technology that comes along because they're operating obviously efficiently as possible and you never know if you add just one little somewhat seemingly benign solution on the actual um, process will it throw everything off they slowly adopt it into two things but when they do they definitely adopt a lot of it so as the data has become more of a reference point versus like i guess the good old boy system of just uh, done this a hundred times, I know what a, that pipeline will do kind of idea. Now there's data, they're analyzing the data, they're getting smarter about you know, what they can see and how they can see it. Um, obviously it's optimizing a lot of the processes, you know, the people aren't walking the pipeline all day or you're not being sent out to look at a, a ton of stations all along to see what's going on. You can uh, now look at data. You know, you can skate it in the older days that the move over from 
actually putting on sensors, which was one big move. They put on sensors, but someone still have to go out there and take a reading. That's similar like the, to the gas guy that comes out and does a reading or, you know, how much gas you use this month. They'll, they'll come and just check those things to making those smart and automated through SCADA and others to um, where they're at now. And with the adoption of all this new data and the ability to process it, and of course, the huge interest in learning analytics and how to do prescriptive and predictive things uh, based on some data models, they're uh, quickly moving towards how can we get better data to enrich our ability to decide using a data-based approach versus, you know, a pure physical approach. Right. Um, in my, my earlier history, uh, to kind of um, a reference point to, uh, to that particular uh, piece that you, that you shared is, um, you know, there's a difference between preventive maintenance and predictive maintenance. And, you know, some of the users or some of the listeners that uh, may not be well tied into these concepts is just generally um, preventive maintenance is on a schedule and, and the, the schedule might be somewhat arbitrary. Um, you know, manufacturer recommends you, you know, do an oil change on your, your vehicle every, you know, 10,000 kilometers. Predictive maintenance is a little bit different and it goes right to your point, Sean, of uh, establishing enough data to know when something breaks down and get to it before it breaks down and not too far before it breaks down, presumably. Um, this is kind of a narrow example, but um, you use that data um, in a predictive way uh, to get out in front and um, make sure that you don't have a, a failure of some kind and a mishap. So certainly over the years, the, um, the as with everything, big data um, really just uh, uh, tends to rule the roost in terms of decision-making and um, d- deployment of assets and how budgets get spent. No, you're absolutely right about that, Pat. Freaking the... Um the whole idea of uh, incorporating more tools to analyze data and, and more tools to collect the data has been going on for quite a while. And now it's re- reached an area where pipelines can actually start prescribing how they operate based on what they've done for you know, preventative and predictive uh, modeling. Um, they're starting to see that over time, we need to do X process every three weeks versus every month and a half because of how it's been affecting you know, what they predicted, and so they can start changing their actual, you know, prescriptive way of working based on that. So it takes it even one step further. And there's a healthy appetite for data as long as it's the right data that fits in with oil and gas, which is, which is the rub there. I mean, you have to understand what they kind of want, or else they'll be sending a bunch of data that's not really useful. Right, for certain. So, so let's step into the new technology here. Let's let's talk about. Um UAVs and what you're doing with uh, with drones, as they may more commonly be be known, and um, how this technology is is has evolved. There's a but just a, a range of things that we can we can chat about here. How it's being applied in the industries that uh, uh, that you folks are active in. So let's just start with some of the basics. So how long have drones been used in, in your businesses? And sort of what is the trajectory looked like? Um, these are relatively relatively new technologies in, in the oil and gas and, and pipelining verticals. So, so a little bit of the history and, and what does growth trajectory look like with these, uh, with these technologies? I'd like to explain a little bit about drones in general, though. I think sure. uh, your listeners would benefit from that. So there are many different kinds of drones. You have your basic quadcopter type drones, that's four blades. Um, you, most listeners are probably very familiar with those types of systems. Um, and they have the 
anything from the very small ones like you might be able to buy at a consumer level uh, to larger mm -hmm. systems that are essentially the same with more uh, propellers. So there are hexacopters, which are six rotors, or octocopters, which have eight, and so on. Um, those systems are designed to carry their sensor payloads, predominantly uh, daylight and infrared cameras or potentially LIDAR, in a very small, very targeted area. Uh, those drones have made a significant impact in facilities management. Now, I'll get to that a little bit more later. Mm. The other types of drones are, are more fixed wing. They look like a regular airplane. Um, they take off uh, either from a runway or a catapult that launches them. They fly significantly longer range, usually in hours of range. Um, and they're able to carry heavier payloads and fly at a higher altitude. Those drones are much more complicated to operate for long-range surveillance because of the regulations uh, surrounding them and the cost and maintenance required for such drones. Yeah. What we've done and the new class of drones coming into the market over the last, uh, really only the last couple of years, are these intermediate range drones, which uh, have much more autonomy and much more frequent flyability than your long range or short range systems. Um, and they're designed for a little bit of a different purpose. That said, uh, the drones that you see in industry today are almost entirely the, the very short range systems. They're almost uh, at every large facility or factory system uh, in the United States has some sort of short-range drone that is being used for very specific data capturing purposes where it's uh, more cost-effective to use those than it is to deploy, um, say, built-in systems or systems that, that are immobile. So in the old days, it was very common to put a FLIR camera on a pole and stick it looking at a valve somewhere in a facility and it always looked at that particular area and temperature readings were sent to a control room and if they ever deviated somebody would uh, would know the problem with that is is that that camera is generally a fixed camera that doesn't move and it can only look at that one thing and you're not going to put a 25 30 or fifty thousand uh, dollar FLIR camera at every single spot that you want to monitor in a facility so drones came along in these short-range systems and they were very quickly able to get up there, move around the entire facility, and scan targeted areas for potential things like fugitive gas emissions, uh, oil leakages, or temperature inversions that shouldn't exist in that area. And they were so good at it that companies have started to develop automated systems that are pre-programmed to do this mission over and over and over again. Um, and that's what's really good about those systems. However, once you get outside the facility and you start to get on the right of way where the pipeline exists, uh, almost all of those systems fall short. And uh, almost nothing really exists on the market today that would give you a constant gathering of information along your pipeline. Uh, so if you've got a thousand kilometers of uh, gas pipeline or oil pipeline that needs to be monitored on a regular basis, once you get out on that right of way, you're still stuck in the traditional methods for gathering that data, whether it's 
people on foot or some airplane that flies over once in a while or a helicopter or potentially a long-range drone system, but it's kind of a one-off operation. You call somebody, they come in there, do the mission, gather the data, and you analyze it. Um, what we're doing now is we're taking um, an automated approach. We're trying to uh, productize a system that someone could deploy along their pipeline and that would monitor the system on a regular basis, so, you know, up to a few flights a day, every single day, if that's as often as you want to fly, gathering uh, a whole range of new data. So things like vegetation encroachment, land movement um, analysis, leaks that may be happening on the pipeline that you might not be fully aware of. Those are the kinds of things that we're starting to move into now with these intermediate range drones. Yeah, it's a, a really broad spectrum of, of capability. So typically you would, you would think of these things as really just being concerned about, you know, the pipeline itself and what's happening inside the pipeline or, or um, affiliated uh, equipment and apparatus. But you had mentioned um, encroachment of vegetation. Why is that an issue? Why, why would that be a concern? So <clears throat> a right-of-way is, you know, it, it, you're basically putting a pipe through the landscape, right? The geography and the terrain is constantly shifting. Mm -hmm. So by looking and overflying a, a particular route from A to B, many times we're able to gather predictive data that tells us, well, if you have land erosion in this area or if you've got soil deviation or you have growth in this area that's abnormal, it could lead to problems down the road. Depending on which, what your asset is, vegetation encroachment can have a significantly negative effect. Um, it's certainly not a short-term problem if you've got some trees growing over a pipeline, but if you've got, uh, let's, say, let's say we overfly and there was a flood uh, or heavy rain recently and it caused the land to erode in that area, then you could be at risk of a landslide, which would then obviously have a potential negative impact on the pipeline. And that yeah. happens more frequently than, you, than you'd even know about. A lot of these incidents go unreported. Sean could speak a lot more to those things, but there are hundreds, if not thousands, of incidents that happen on a small scale that are reported uh, just in the United States alone every single year. So by flying uh, an intermediate-range system like ours over your pipeline on a regular basis, you start to collect this new data, and over time you start to say, well... I can put all my maintenance here because I need it there. Uh, and in this area, I don't need it so much. So I, I make much smarter decisions now with this new data. Certainly not going to solve every problem, but it adds that extra data that's missing that you don't get today on this. Uh, it, we call it the hidden data. It's this long-range asset that's missing, and you have limited data periodically. Now you, you're going to get lots of data on a regular basis. Yeah, and to go along with what you're talking about, the traditional methods are, you know, of walking or using helicopters to gather this data was a very narrow focus of the type of data along come along, like like he was saying, there's new technologies and sensors and data's come along. Uh, since then, like you, definitely like you said, through the 80s and 90s, but today there's a broader uh, awareness of external problems that a pipeline has to be aware of, um, mainly with the right-of-way one, they're mandated to keep it clear to a certain width of the pipeline area. Uh, the internal corporation has its own 
compliance levels of what they'll tolerate as far as you know vegetation growth near or around the the asset itself and um, this goes along directly with your idea of becoming more prescriptive and predictive uh, with this added uh, broader view of the data that's uh, available to them through a, a UAV something that's even better than typically with planes where they just uh, pretty much are eye spotting issues this is a closer up view they're able to be a little more vigilant in their decision making as far as what they need to do you know, if there is erosion and it's not so much the public that the general public thinks of it as like what happens if the, the thing erupts and oil and gas goes flying everywhere that's uh that's one thing but you hear about those you know and they're they're really big events so there's not a, that's not a common thing what we're looking for is really just a small lease or a change in the structure that the pipeline is on or in because a little tiny bend will lead sooner or later to major problems or if the ground's right. eroding underneath and it's starting to sag it's not built to it's not built to do that these things are very you know very tuned to exactly how the engineers struck it up to put it out and if uh, the ground sinks in one area or if it's, if it's uh, a bolt's rusting and it's starting to fall off the uh the supporting structures a bridge changes uh, in its ability to support it. All these things, if they don't get detected early on, have those major effects later on down the way. Yeah, I mean, a, a reasonable um, a reasonable example of this that people that live in a in an urban environment, particularly older cities, uh, might have is that it it's uh, a routine activity typically in the spring for uh, the city or the municipality to come around and they have cataloged particularly large trees that may become encumbered with um, electrical facilities so they'll be out um, lopping off branches and, and pruning trees um, to make sure that um, uh, the integrity of electrical systems throughout the municipality aren't jeopardized. So, you know, this would be um, kind of a similar thing in terms of work process or what you're what you're trying to achieve to keep the system safe. You know, one wonders, given the amount of drone usage and it's it's increasing, uh, their increasing usage, whether municipalities are are taking on this kind of technology as well. From um, you know, it's it's one thing to mobilize a crew and put them up in a, a bucket truck to take a look. Um, it's another thing to um, have a, a talented operator, um, skilled operator, go out with a drone and um, save a bunch of time and health and safety exposure um, yeah. to to look at trees. Actually, that's a perfect example of how drones are beginning to change those industries because traditionally speaking, they don't even um, they don't even really go to check, although they do have some people driving around and saying, oh, that tree's too close or that one's too close. In general, they have an army that goes out um, and automatically trims any tree that they find that's too close to where it is. So it's a very inefficient way of, of handling that business. And that's going to change with the advent of drones and LIDAR. So where LIDAR comes in is that you could have a long-range drone scan almost an entire urban area in a matter of, uh, of a few days with a LIDAR system, and it will measure down to the centimeter the distance of every tree from every wire uh, out there. And then using that, a computer can automatically program which trees need cutting and which don't. And the same is true for a long-range right-of-way on a power line, um, a transmission line, or 
or any area that that needs that type of coverage. So that's just another example of how in the future, once the regulatory bodies allow drones to fly in populated areas or even in non-populated areas in North America right now, one of the regulations uh, preventing us from, from doing this long range analysis is the, the inability to get permission to fly beyond visual line of sight. Meaning if I can't see my drone, I can't control it, I can't fly at long range. So it's not uh, yet a regular thing that we can just get up there and fly uh, anywhere we want. But, but that is how, how the industry is going to change. It's, it's a very interesting piece that you just brought up there in terms of regulatory, because when you see um, the various usage of, of drones, so when you're thinking about clipping trees, the first thing that comes to my mind is, can you put a, can you put a small chainsaw on a drone? I mean, they, they have uh, flamethrowers on drones now to uh, remove debris from high-tension wires. You know, there's a, a, a real discussion around, um, and, and you've, you've, you've tipped into this discussion, um, obviously, with the um, uh, line-of-sight issues. And that's, you know, really just with, um, I, I presume, with passive systems um, that are basically looking at things and making calculations and, and uh, collecting and storing data. Uh, but what about, um, you know, kind of risk involved with, being able to to apply energy to something. So if you've got a, a drone-mounted flamethrower, if you've got a, a drone-mounted chainsaw, um, regulatory oversight becomes um, even more heightened. Oh yes, without question. And you know, I've seen those systems, and they they do exist. Um, they they are not commonly used for the very reason that you just said. The the regulatory authorities aren't really excited to get someone up there with a drone with a flamethrower, you know? <laughs> even though it has a very, very good use case, especially for power lines, it's frowned upon. It's scary. And yeah. look, this is a disruptive technology. It's new. Um, drones have a bad stigma because the technology originated in the military. Um, the idea that you've got this uh, autonomous robotic system out there that you know may or may not have control that maybe somebody else could commandeer and and you know do something bad with is is you know it, it's something that regulators uh are are just now starting to understand and starting to realize now the reality is is obviously very different in our own experience in the last four and a half years um and in the last 10 plus years that that people in our company have been in the industry these fully autonomous robotic systems are much, much safer than human-controlled systems. The chance for an accident, the, um, the danger to a human being from a robotic system is far less than if somebody were manually controlling a drone and flying it and um, potentially capable of making a mistake. Mm -hmm. Most of the development accidents that we've, happened, that we've had inside our own R&D has been um, human related, meaning I forgot something or I didn't do the right thing or I switched the wrong thing on. Um, so those caused crashes of our, our drone systems during testing. But in production, the drone is only capable of doing what it's programmed to do. It'll never deviate from its course. It'll never fly lower or higher than it's supposed to. It'll never fly into something that's not supposed to go to. It's uh, it has, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of automatic checks that the system is doing on a, on a, a second by second basis. 
to ensure that it's doing what it's supposed to do and not something else. So regulators are starting to warm up to this and they're starting to understand that these intermediate and long-range fully autonomous systems exist. SkyX right now is the only company around that has a uh, ground station that automates the entire process. The drone can hop from station to station along infrastructure, gathering data, recharging its systems, and taking off again and, and going forward. And eventually, I have no doubt that we'll find drones uh, flying over our cities in the next five to 10 years on a regular basis. Uh, it'll become more and more frequent. Outside of the health and safety aspects of operating the UAV system itself, there's also an overall reduction in risk exposure, particularly health and safety. Can you comment on the improvement from a health and safety point of view and also from an environmental impact point of view? Sure. So uh, from certainly from a, a, a risk reduction, you know, you're taking the human being out of the loop currently uh, to inspect long infrastructure or pipeline uh, or any other rail or power lines for that matter. Involving human beings in the process always increases the risk. You have to send people up in helicopters or aircraft. It's an increased risk. Um, and by applying this new technology to, to this large geographic infrastructure, um, you remove the human from most, if not all, of that risk. There's no longer a need for someone to be on site. Imagine that you have a, um, you know, a, a damage in a critical oil leak or, or fire. Even um, by sending someone to inspect that, even it's a, it's a, you know, it's a serious danger. So. Using drones for that is is a natural way to mitigate that risk, and and it's uh, it's certainly the way the industry is going to go in the future. From an environmental perspective, um, it also clearly has uh, a significant impact. There are many different ways environmental improvements, not just from noise reduction by not having to fly helicopters limiting the amount of uh, hydrocarbons that go out into the environment from what's being done. And also even just the manned teams that usually are sent out uh, hundreds of miles into infrastructure, into the wilderness that have to, you know, disrupt the environment around them um, with their logistical trail that has to happen just to go do their jobs. A, a drone is a, a small robot that's flying from point A to point B, and it basically has very limited, if, if zero, uh, impact on the environment at all, uh, especially if it's an electric-based system where it has no emissions at all. Um, so there are significant improvements really overall, and that's, that's where I would say we get out of it. Yeah, and those are those are really big pieces. Um, just far less risk profile for individuals heading out to the field in remote areas, and they can be exposed really to anything wild wildlife, weather extremes, um, all manner of things. And then I also think that the environmental win is is significant, as you suggest too. I mean, there's just um, no emission issues here, and um, uh, the impact on environment is, uh, as you suggest, almost nil. Um, that's great information. 
So regarding the, the relationship between the industry and the regulator, obviously industry and the pace of technology and innovation moves far faster than governments typically do. So is there any effort that you're familiar with to provide good reference point to the legislators and the regulators so that they can make well-informed and balanced decisions? And is there sort of a stepping off point or a clearinghouse or any sort of mechanism to plug in the regulators to the rapidly advancing technology? Yeah, there are a number of, uh, of strategic plans that our group is working on. Uh, to develop the key relationships both with the um, aerospace regulators, the industry regulators, um, and government representatives as well to influence the, the technology forward um, as it grows. Like you said, it is moving at a much, much faster pace than, than government is, uh, is able to keep up with it even. Um, and we're also developing new systems to help the government regulators solve challenges for themselves. At the end of the day, in the United States and in Canada, uh, the, the key regulatory body to prevent drones from operating routinely are the FAA and Transport Canada. And both of those groups, um, are their main concern is mitigating risk uh, to any human beings. For the, That's first and foremost. So um, any operation that you do would fall under those jurisdictions and you would have to work through a process where you develop a relationship with them that leads to proof that your technology is safe and then on a almost case-by-case -case basis you have to apply for permission to fly in certain areas and it certainly uh, it's it's very rigorous right now but I believe that within the next three to five years you're going to see some major improvements to that process and some uh, relaxation of the rules allowing those systems that are deemed to be safe for whatever technology that are employing um, again on an individual basis will be allowed to fly uh, more frequently especially in non-urban environments in remote areas where there's almost zero risk of any human fatality or damage to infrastructure or damage to uh, to the to the environment i think you're going to find that those companies will get approvals there's also the idea the standards bodies that are looking at drone technology and how it can be used in the commercial space and uh, those groups are also writing the the um, the regulations and the standards that that will go to the government representatives and be looked at as uh you know what to do as guidance for for the next steps it's encouraging to hear that uh th those activities are taking place and i i think it's it's a no-brainer that um as the technology continues to advance um the the regulators and and perhaps the legislators um would be uh moving ahead with this stuff simply because of the utility, the cost savings, and really just a lot of the, the points that you've made in this, uh, in this conversation are just so valuable to society in general and uh, in the commercial spaces in particular. We've touched on a, probably a dozen really cool applications already, but is there a noteworthy success story or two that you can share where the technology brought particularly good value to a client? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think there are two very interesting ones that would like to mention. And one is directly related to the oil and gas industry, which is the um, the issue of third party activity um, or other another term is hot tapping. Um, if you look at the second and third world countries, we basically have a situation where a large amount of, of oil or gas is stolen on a regular basis and um, you're looking at billions of dollars in loss and, and this feeds international criminal organizations, localized criminal organizations with the funding that they need. It's a major source. Governments have had traditionally a very hard time mitigating this. Um, it, they would send up helicopters and aircraft, and uh, they could never be available on the frequency that they needed to to try to interdict some or all of this, um, this activity. With the new technology that a company like SkyX brings to the market, we can do these flights, uh, uh, surveillance missions on a regular uh, basis, modifying the time of day as needed, uh, and be ready to go almost on a moment's notice um, to to provide the awareness that these companies are missing and these governments are missing so that uh, they can then mitigate the risk and do their job. So I think in the second and third world countries, uh, the technologies that we're developing today will see in the next three to five years a great reduction in the amount of uh, revenue going to criminal organizations and funding black market operations around the world. What impact that has on a, in a broader scale, I'm not, I'm not really sure or qualified to say. What I can tell you is that our technology and the technologies like companies like ours are, that are developing will definitely change that landscape for sure. So that's one key um, thing that we're, we're doing now and, and is, is operating uh, successfully. And that's detecting people, cars, vehicles, trucks, you know, construction activity, that, that type of stuff. The second one that I think is also really interesting and is tied more to the drone delivery um, is blood samples and critical small um, deliveries of, of um, critical documents or, or uh you know, health products for people living in remote regions. Um, and we did a project recently with um, Canada Post where we were able to uh, fly blood samples from uh, in Vancouver to another one 84 kilometers away um, as a proof of that we could do this in remote communities. And you take a country like Canada as an example, they have a lot of northern communities with literally tens of thousands of people living that don't have regular access in and out because six months out of the year, maybe the roads are impassable. And the only way to get in and out of these communities is by helicopter or airplane, and they don't come on a regular schedule. So if you had a drone system that could be the remote link in and out of these communities on a daily basis, it really does improve the quality of life for those people, whether it's just a matter of getting an updated driver's license or someone that, you know, needed to get their blood samples tested at a laboratory to see what's wrong with them. Um, those things can be real life changers for, for uh, millions of people around the world that are living in remote regions uh, that are that are not uh, easily or, or 
you know, frequently fed by, by normal transportation and logistics. Great examples. Um, I had no visibility of the medical applications and uh, the critical documentation applications, but again, uh, once explained, they just seem like massive step forwards in terms of efficiency. Um, I want to go back and revisit uh, your first example, um, because some listeners might not have an appreciation and reference points for just how dangerous a hot tapping operation is. It's, it's a fascinating um, thing from a, a technical execution and certainly a, a safety point of view under controlled, legitimate circumstances. And risk just escalates in uncontrolled, um, sort of clandestine and illegal situations. But what we're talking here is about cutting into a live oil or gas line um, in order to take uh, siphon product off. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what the hot tapping process is and um, sort of the the technical aspect of it in terms of what physically has to happen to illegally remove product from a live pipeline. Yeah. So it's actually, you know, it's a variety of, of different types of uh, capabilities that are, that are being used on the ground to do this. And like any industry, it has your, you know, low level uh, cheap guys that go out there, they drill a hole into the oil line, turn off oil in pails you know, whatever is coming through the line, whether it be crude or, or, or you know, sweet or whatever it is. Um, and they take it in buckets, dumping it all over the, the, the land around them and, you know, dumping it into bigger barrels by hand. That's like the, the, the cheapest method for doing that is to just literally drill a hole into the pipe and then just, uh, you know, carry it out manually. Um, and these guys are literally covered in 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 whatever the product is the environment around them is completely saturated with uh, oil um, which seeps into the environment it's all over the place and it's basically a big giant mess so that that's how those operations run at the lowest level the highest level are professional uh, oil and gas um, people who come out there with professional equipment they'll either put like a saddle or weld a nozzle right onto the pipeline with a valve installed. Um, they'll back trucks up to it, and then they will load up the tankers uh, with the product and then drive away with it in a much cleaner operation. Um, those are, are very uh, common in Mexico, as an example. And recently in Mexico, I think a year ago, there was a major explosion at one of these sites where I think something like 20 or 30 people were killed because of the the la there's no regulations that, at all they're basically just going in and out of there as fast as they can um so those are the, basically the two types of uh that exist there's all in the middle in between they even have small refinery shops set up in many of these where they're taking the the raw product and refining it very crudely and then using it for sale on the on the open market. So the it really is an industry by itself, um, probably a multi billion dollar industry uh, all by itself, going from the lowest level to the highest level of of product. And it's up until recently, it's been very hard to mitigate. 
um, oftentimes they'll patch in the professional circumstances where you have a valve, they'll cover it with dirt and, and other stuff so that you can't see where it is. They even have dug tunnels and trenches from outside the right of way um, underground into the right of way, locate the pipe and then make the, the um, make the patch over there underground so you don't even know that they're there and then they just have these long pipes and tubes that go out three four hundred meters off the pipeline with these trucks and it's a very professional operation um the only indication that i'm aware of that the industry has is the la the lower pressure that's coming through especially on the gas lines uh on the receiving side at the pumping station down the line uh, but usually it's so minimal that they don't even notice it at all. But I think Pemex uh, released a statement in the news that as of two years ago, they were losing something like $2.5 billion per year in uh, oil theft. So that's just from one company in one location. And this happens worldwide. It's a, a huge amount of money. Um, I wouldn't have had a sense that there would be sort of makeshift refining uh, facilities. So what would this be? Maybe like uh, some pumping and pressurizing capability and, uh, you know, a basic fractionating tower to get lighter fractions? And I, I believe so. It, I'm not honestly an expert in that area. Uh, but from what I understand, the refining results in a substantially cheaper product of whatever the source material was. Um, and it's usually located nearby or, or uh, not far from where they're taking the materials. So if you look at a country like um, Nigeria, which is a huge oil producer, uh, all over the Niger Delta is, are hot tapping uh, militias that go out there. They're well armed. They're dangerous. And they have very crude facilities, makeshift uh, construction sites that are set up adjacent to where the right-of-way is, where the pipeline is running, um, then they'll start their operation and then run it as long as they can until somebody comes along, you know, challenges them, and then they leave, and then they go somewhere else and do the same thing again. Be again, because the infrastructure is just so far, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of kilometers and miles of, of uh, available places to tap the line, it's it's hard to nearly impossible for any regulatory agency or company to interdict this from happening on a regular basis. So drones are just one advantage. They don't provide the ultimate solution because they can't be a camera in the sky 24 seven, at least not yet. But what we can do is we can fly, let's say on a particular stretch of pipe, we can fly three or four times a day at different times where the people on the ground won't necessarily know when we're showing up and where we're going to be. And that, that presents a challenge for them that they're not used to. And it'll be interesting to see how they respond, but I can tell you that the early numbers are showing upwards of a 90% reduction on certain routes in, in, um, in, in the infiltration going on, meaning that these people recognize that there's surveillance and they they go somewhere else. Yeah, game changer for certain. Um, Ninety percent is a, a big number. Oh yeah, I mean that that we didn't expect it to be like that. But when you when you're responding that way, and then the company that you're supporting comes back to you and says, "Well, we're not seeing the issue 
anymore in this region. They must have moved somewhere else. Go find out where that somewhere else is. Uh, you know you're 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 making a change. Yeah, yeah, it's a, just a tremendous story every way you look at it. All right, this has uh, been a, a really good session. I uh, totally appreciate your time, Jason and and Sean as well. Um, thanks very much for uh, chatting with us. Wonderful. Thanks, Pat. You can find out more about SkyX at skyx.com. There you'll find more information about the technology that is bringing significant value to a wide variety of industry sectors. As described in the podcast, there are things being done with applied drone technology that simply weren't doable before. So it was cool to talk to two really knowledgeable people who are on the leading edge of this kind of innovation and to hear how practical application of the technology is making operations safer and organizations more profitable through control of loss. If you like what you heard today or if you've liked previous podcasts, or have interesting subject matter that our audience can learn from, we want to hear from you. Check our show notes at safopedia.com slash podcast. You can email me at pat.robinson at hsebestpractices.com or contact me on Twitter at patrobinson2005.